Romans chapter 12, big pivot point, service, practical, outworking, and we're going to see these first eight verses capture the big picture in a nutshell. So a vertical transformation, uh, inner transformation, and a of outward transformation we're going to see. So starting in verse 1 and 2, we'll see this vertical transformation. So follow along with me, and we'll tease this principle out a little bit. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore. Some versions will have the therefore first. And if you have a pencil or you like to write in your Bible, you should circle or box in that therefore. It's one of the most important in the whole book of Romans. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself what it's there you go. Some of you guys are getting this. You're awake today, right? What, you ask yourself what it's there for. It usually means that the person writing, in this case Paul, is giving us a summary or a conclusion based on what he just got done talking about. In this case, this therefore refers back all the way to chapters 1 through 11. He's writing, and it's his pivot point like he often does. He's saying, hey, therefore, because of the mercies of God, he said, the mercies of God, which is his mercy in our sin, his mercy for salvation, his mercy in sanctifying us, and his mercy in being sovereign over that whole process for our sake. He says, because of these mercies, he says, we should present ourselves or present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now he's going to flesh that out. What does that mean? He says, do not be conformed to this world, meaning don't be squeezed into its mold. Don't be shaped by it, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's my first point in terms of this. And if the essence of Christian life is, is worship of God, I'm going to put my points in this idea of these are all aspects of worship, that everything we do is a form of worship. And so the first one is this. I worship God when I present my life to him and am transformed by him. I worship God when I present my life to him and am transformed by him. See, our response to this truth these truths that we've seen over the last, you know, couple semesters in the first 11 chapters is, is just to do that, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And we do this by allowing God to shape our thoughts, to shape our thinking and our views. And we no longer hunt and peck and say, hey, hey you know, I like this, God, and I'm, I'm okay with that, but this, no, I'm going to chunk that out. This is kind of neat and this is trendy. Everyone seems to be doing this, so I'll do that. But these things, hmm, no. That's not going to work for me. That's not what Paul says is worship at all. That's, in a sense, worship of ourselves. We're still God in that situation. And what Paul's saying is once you come to grips with the fact that the God of this universe has done what he has said and revealed in chapters 1 through 11, there's only one logical response for us to say, I'm yours, God. This life is 100% fully yours, whatever you want to do with it. We no longer pick and choose what we want to obey or want to like to obey. We offer ourselves wholly to him. I love how one pastor commented on this passage, and I'm quoting him. He said this. He says, what it means to live a Christian life is that you put to death the right to live life as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best 
what should happen in your life. You put that to death and you give it to God. It feels like a death to really say, you know best, God, and I just trust you. And here's what you say in your word, and I don't like it all the time, but I'm going to do it. I don't choose anymore. Dr. John Gerstner, a pastor and professor in the early 1900s, uh, used to speak to a lot of young people during that time at conferences and mission conferences. And I was reading one message in which he shared a story uh, in regards to this concept of really giving our lives to God and a story of a teenager who was greatly uh, transformed or impacted at one of the conferences that he uh, did. And he kind of followed her life and she stayed in touch throughout her journey. And I'm going to read this to you because this is his account in a sense of it, uh, as a young Christian girl at a conference and she was 15 or 16, she was very moved by the message and decided to give her life to Christ in a special way. She made a commitment to go into lifetime missionary service. This was in the 1930s, an American girl, 15 or 16, he said, and she said, my heart is to go to Asia. Dr. Gerstner said he, he had seen an awful lot of young Christian teenagers make these vows, and a lot of them don't last for even a few weeks, but she stuck with it. And as the years went by, she went through high school, she kept her resolve, and she did her research. She went to the missionary agencies, and she learned how difficult and dangerous it was. And in the 1930s, many missionaries were killed uh, over in Asia because of all that happened there. But she wanted to go, even though she understood the danger. So they told her, these agencies did about it, but they said there are two things that you're going to have to have in place before you can go. The first is your training. You're going to have to go to a Bible college, you know, get some theological training, you're going to have to get some cultural training, and you're going to have to go to a missionary training school before you can you know, be sent to a place like this. So that was the first thing. And they said the second thing is you're going to have to be married. So at that time, because of the dangers in Asia uh, and in that time of the, of the you know, situation, they would not send a single female over to those areas because of the dangers. Not to mention there are some cultural issues in the Asian countries too that made that difficult as well. So, so one night it says she, near the end of her high school years, she sat down and she said, Lord, I take my hands off my life. I give you everything. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about a safe life. I'm going to give you my whole life. Everyone else is getting ready for all sorts of other fun. I'm going to give myself to missionary service. I'm going to give, do all, uh, get all the training I need. There's only one thing I need from you, God. I just need a husband. Probably a prayer that a lot of women have said at one time or another, right? So she went to a Bible college. And she knew going to a Bible college wasn't good preparation for many other things she could have done, but she knew what she wanted to do. When she got done with four years of Bible college, she went to a missionary training school. But at the end of Bible college, she had no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. So she went on to her two years of missionary training school, and as the semesters went by, no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. On the night before she was about to graduate, no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. John Gerstner says in that sermon, he said, that, that night, the night before I was supposed to graduate, she said, I sat in my dorm room, an angry young woman. She said, God, how could you do this to me? 
I have nothing else I can do. I have nowhere else to go. I've put everything into this. I have no other prospects. I've committed my whole life to you. I took my hands off my life. I gave you my life. And I only asked for one thing, and you didn't do it. How can you do this to me? And she wrestled and struggled. Incredibly, that night, she suddenly realized something. She suddenly realized she'd been kidding herself. She suddenly realized she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off her life. She was miserable because she never had. She realized she had developed an idea of a heroic life. She had developed an idea of a noble life. She had said, if I could live that, then I'd know I had value. I'd know I'm a person of worth. And she was telling God, that's the life you have to give me. She was doing everything she could to basically put God in her debt so he'd have to do it. And she began to realize, I'd never taken my hands off my life. I was using God. I wasn't serving God. I was telling him what he had to do. Then she says, that night, for the first time, I took my hands off my life. I said, you know where I should go, and you know what I should do. You know best. Dr. Gerstner closes that part of the sermon by looking at all of these young students that he speaks with and says, if that girl who had spent a third of her life getting ready for missionary service, saying goodbye to everything, thought she had taken her life off of her hands, only to realize that she hadn't. What does that look like for you and I? See, that's what Paul is saying in a nutshell in this passage. When we recognize who God is, when we recognize what he has done, we should come to a place in our lives when we say, my hands are off, God. I belong to you completely. No bargaining, no trades, no, if you give me this, I'll do this, or God, I've done all these things for you, now what's in this for me? You will come to a place in your life where you recognize what he wants for you will always be better than what you could want for yourself. That a God who would love you and sacrifice for you and do this for you is always gonna be a God who knows better for your life than you and I could ever know for ourselves. See, we worship God only when we say, God, I am fully yours. Whatever you need to do in my life, whatever you wanna do with my life, you have permission. There's no exceptions. Secondly is the inward transformation. And once that outward one uh, or a vertical one takes place, we're prepared for this second one, the inward one. And Paul says it like this in verse three as he transitions into the second part of this passage. He says, for by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
So my second point is this, this inward transformation that Paul talks about is summarized like this. I worship God when I think humbly about myself. I worship God when I think humbly about myself. Now humbly, I love, I think it's C.S. Lewis maybe that says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, meaning you just have to think poorly of yourself. C.S. Lewis says it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less meaning you're not constantly focused on you and it's not all about you. Humility is not also just, you know, thinking that there's nothing to you. Humility is a willingness to submit to someone else's idea of who you are. And that's at the heart of this. Even Paul, I love how he practiced it himself in this. He says, uh, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. Paul recognizes he's not in a place of authority to tell other Christians how they should think based on anything in himself. It's because of a grace given to him. Paul, at the beginning of all his letters, he, he says, Paul, an apostle of God by the grace of Jesus Christ because of what God has done in my life, That's why he has that role. It's the grace of God. He doesn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. It is given to him by the mercies and grace of God. And so he humbly says, okay, God, that's the role you have for me. And that role in this time was to write these letters, was to record the words of God at that moment so they could be kept throughout time, was to speak to the church about those truths. And so he was willing to do that. That's not arrogance. That's humility, saying, hey, Only because God has given me this grace do I have the privilege to do this. Think about it for a minute. Think about Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament. Nowadays, if say this had come about nowadays, right, he'd have like tons of books in the Christian bookstores. He'd be receiving royalties like crazy. I mean, do you guys have any idea? Do you know what the number one best-selling book is every single year and has been for many, many years? The Bible. Think about that. He wrote a good portion of that. I mean, I don't know if there was bookstores back then, but Paul could have published it and been a billionaire, right? It would have been, you know, incredible. But he didn't. He submitted himself, not that they had bookstores then, but he, he submitted himself to serving the church and being dependent on their care for him. He wasn't trying to promote himself and build himself up. He humbly said, I get this because of a grace. I'm going to use it, but I'm going to do so in a way that serves those under my care. We need to think of ourselves properly. That's so important uh, to do so. I love this uh, article. Well, I don't love it. I just think it's ironic. This study that was done uh, a, a number of years ago is in mathematics. An international test in mathematics was administered to students from 10 different nations, including the United States. The test had two parts to it. The first pertained to the mathematical competency, and the second part of the test pertained to the student's feeling or perception of how well they performed on the test. Okay, so he, here was the result to those two things. Two ironies stood out in this test. First is the Korean students were last in their perception of how well they performed, but first in their actual performance. Second, the American students scored last in mathematical performance, but fortunately made up for it by scoring highest in their personal perception of their performance. (laughs) 
that captures a lot of our cultures. And neither of these is necessarily right or good, but the reality is, is this is a perfect example of not thinking soberly or properly about yourselves. And we live in a culture or an age, in particular in our culture, that loves to just pour like self-esteem type views into each other to make us feel way better about ourselves than we really should or improperly about ourselves than we really should. They're not sober, proper judgments. And Paul's saying when we understand these truths, we stop thinking about ourselves the way our culture says we should think about ourselves, the way we want to think about ourselves or others tell us we should think about ourselves, and we start thinking about ourselves the way God thinks about us. And there's two tensions in that. One of them is to realize that, that we are more horrible than we could possibly believe in our sinfulness, but that we are more loved than you could ever imagine. Those are two tensions we live with. In our brokenness, we are much more broken and ugly than we ever really want to accept. But at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than you could ever fully imagine. And those two truths, when they're brought together, give us a proper view of who we are. I worship God when I think humbly about myself. This third one kind of takes that principle and, and works it outwardly when this inward perspective is brought upon ourselves. And it's summarized in verses four through eight. Follow along with me. It says, Paul says, for is in one body, meaning the body of Christ, we have many members, meaning us as individuals, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So he's showing how we're interdependent in this body. And he goes on to explain that. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of merit, or mercy, excuse me, with cheerfulness. So there are many passages in the Bible that, that talk more specifically about what the gifts are, like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. This one's talking more holistically about how the gifts are to function within the body as a Christian functioning in that body, that we are to use them. And so seeing this as that outward part is I worship God, here's your point, I worship God when I properly exercise my gift within my church. I worship God when I properly exercise my gift within my church. Paul says that specifically, saying, hey, we all have differing gifts, so operate according to your gifts. Don't, if he said, he doesn't say if prophecy, then exercise mercy. If generosity, then lead. He doesn't say try to do someone else's gift. He says humbly recognize the gift that God's given you and then put it into work within the body of Christ. So here's a couple of things that I think are important for us to understand as we look at this, is not exercising your gift in the church can be the result of having a view of yourself that is too high, just as Paul got done thinking saying oftentimes we don't serve, we don't use our gift because it's a reflection of the fact that we have too high a view of ourselves. 
We can come and think, you know, the church should serve me. I want to come and be entertained, and I hope they sing the songs that I like and that Pastor Chad weaves in some humor so, you know, I don't fall asleep in the middle of it. And as long as all those things are in place, then I've been served properly, and and that's good, but I'm not going to participate in it. That's thinking too highly of ourselves and not thinking soberly about that. The funny thing is, is you can think too highly of yourself and it can express itself in many ways. In fact, that is the only reason why people make mistakes is because they think too highly of themselves. You might be saying, well, well, Chad, no. I actually have a very low thought of myself, and that's why I don't serve. I, I, I don't feel like I bring anything to the table, and so, you know, I'm so humble that I just don't feel like I could really serve. Well, that's not really humility. That's pride as well. You see, when you say, I don't serve because I don't feel like I have anything to bring, you're pridefully believing that you know better about yourself than God does. That's not humility, that's pride. That's you saying, yeah, God, I know that your word says about me that when I become a believer in Jesus Christ, that I have a gift. And I know your word says that I should use that gift and exercise it in your body to serve others. But God, I'm not gonna do it because I don't think I'm worthy. That's really not humility, that's pride. It's not willing to accept God's view of yourself because you think too highly of your own view of yourself. So we can not serve or over-serve or do all these things ultimately because of pride. In fact, some of the people that serve the most in a church also think too highly of themselves. They think, hey, I gotta, I gotta prophesy and I gotta show mercy and I gotta give and I gotta lead and, and we can serve and try to be in every single area of the church because why? because we think we're so important. Man, this can't go on without me being there. I gotta be there too, and then I gotta be here, and I gotta serve here. That's also a mindset that can happen because we think too much of ourselves, that we are too important. It happens all the time with organizations or persons that people think, hey, unless this person is here at my event, it's really not an important event. And we start thinking that any individuals within the church are too important or more important than they really are. So really, our lack of service or our over-serving or our improper serving, all of those are the result of not thinking properly about ourselves. It's thinking too highly of ourselves. And once we think properly about ourselves, once we humbly accept God's evaluation of who we are in Christ, the only logical response is to begin serving others, to begin starting to think of others as as important as ourselves. So I worship God when I exercise my gift within my church. You see, the point is every gift is necessary because God has given each one of us a purpose. And when you fail to exercise your gift, you fail to reveal this truth of the transformation that God is working out in your life. That's how he's wired us and that's how he's put us together. Here's why uh, the gospel is so beautiful and the Romans talk so much about this. Here's why Jesus, I believe, is so spectacular because every one of us here knows that we have fallen so short of fully offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Every one of us that's honest realizes that we've done that. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us can recognize that we think too highly of ourselves more than we probably should. And when we're honest with ourselves, each one of us recognizes that we would rather have someone serve us than submit our lives in such a way where we are serving others. And yet Paul is saying in this passage to you and me that we can offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. That, that my failure to give God everything at times, my failure to think of myself properly, my failure to serve my church at times doesn't prevent me from offering something that's still holy and acceptable? How, how can that possibly be? Because someone came and fulfilled this perfectly for you and me. Someone came as a substitute for my failure of worship, for your failure of worship. And Jesus took on human flesh and, and came and did exactly what this passage talks about. He offered himself not just as a living sacrifice because he did do that and his life is an example of that, that from day one till his final breath, he obeyed everything that God asked him to do. He even reminds God in a prayer, in the high priestly prayer, God, I've, I've accomplished everything you've asked me to do. How many of you, I can't even do that for like within three hours of the day. I've already blown it, much less 33 years. He did that all. He offered himself as a living sacrifice. But here's why our living sacrifice can be acceptable. Because Jesus didn't just stop at offering a living sacrifice. He then became a dying sacrifice for you and for me. He then laid down that perfect life so that the death that we deserve could be paid for in his sacrifice. And now through faith in him, in faith in his living sacrifice, faith in his dying sacrifice for our sin, our imperfect and often in process sacrifice is made holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. Jesus thought properly of himself when he walked on earth and he offered himself in service to others. That's, this is the heart of why I love Jesus. This is why I worship him. That's why I'm willing to trust him and obey him because the more I've spent time understanding who he is and what he's done, you know what I realize? There's not a person on this earth that has loved me like he has. There's not a person on this earth that has made the sacrifice that he has made to welcome me into his family. Not a person who has given up comforts like he gave up in those 33 years so that he could save a broken, misguided, arrogant, prideful young man like myself. Not one person I've ever come across that's loved me like him. Until the day I die, until someone can prove a greater love than Jesus' love to me, 
And I will not trust anyone nearly as much as I trust him. I don't trust him perfectly, but he's asked me to do some things that I would not have done if any of you had asked me to do them because I don't trust you nearly as much as I trust him. And now he's calling us to do the same. So let me ask you something. What area of your life are you saying to God, hands off, God? I'll give you this area. I'm, I'm comfortable with you having some say in this, but when it comes to this one, I got to hang on to that one. What area of your life do you believe you know better than God knows for you? Is it your career? Do you feel like as long as I can, can pursue this God and, and I can get these accolades, I can make this kind of money or I can have this kind of status, then, then I'm okay. You can have other things, God. I'll even do these things for you, but don't take my career. And as a result, your family suffers because your career is so important. Your church suffers because you're not available to serve. Even people in your neighborhood suffer. Everyone else kinds of suffers because right now your God is your career. And God's saying, uh, you, you got to give that to me. If, if your career is keeping you from being the man or woman that I've called you to be, then it's become your God. I'm not your God. You gotta trust me with that. Your family needs you to be around. Your church needs you serving and using your gift there as well. Your neighbors, all these people that are in your life that you've sacrificed because of it. Maybe for you it's your family. Sometimes we can flip it around. And, and my family has become an idol to me, so I, I'm not as faithful at work when I should be. I'm not being engaged with other people, and it's everything's about my family. As long as my family is perfect, as long as I'm totally in control of my family and I can create the environment I need for my family, my life is great. But, but when something crumbles in my family, I'll do anything to try to get it back together, even if it means disobeying God. You see, it's not necessarily just what we do. It's how we do it. Everything we do is an act of worship. And God is saying, when you understand what I've done for you, the only logical response is hands off. God, you got this. I trust you. You've proven yourself. I'm yours. And when that happens, we begin to think rightly about ourselves. And we begin to relate rightly with others in our life. Just imagine a church of people filled with this truth. I mean, picture just Jesus' life. One man in one little region. He, he never even traveled outside a region that's like half the size of Texas. That was the only place he ever existed his whole life. But one life fully devoted to God, one life perfectly seeing himself, one life perfectly serving others, and it turned the whole world upside down. Imagine a church filled with hundreds of people that saw themselves rightly with God, who saw themselves properly and with a right judgment and related properly to others. Imagine the impact 
a group like that could have in their community. Imagine how many people's lives might be transformed when they could look and see a group of people who were living totally different than anything they'd ever experienced in this world. That could be this church. That could be our church. When we see God properly, when we relate to him properly, when we see ourselves properly, when we begin to relate and serve each other properly. I pray that as we finish this series this spring, that that God begins another work in us as a church to shape us into the beauty of these truths and the beauty of his son whom he sent for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Lord, thank you that in your kindness, every time we open this book and simply proclaim its truth, that you promise that your spirit will be active in our hearts and in our minds to change us, to transform us. And I pray that he did that work in each of us today. Lord, I know that in my times reading and meditating and praying over these passages as I prepare, I often don't know what that journey is going to entail. And yet, every single time I have the privilege to open and read and and understand these truths, Lord, you preach a message to me as well, that this book is living and active. And Lord, you are so good to apply it in our lives. And I pray that you will do so to us as a church and you will change us as your people to rightly relate to you, to properly think of ourselves, and Lord, to properly serve others. In Jesus' name we pray.